What's a fool? A fool is someone who actively questions conventional wisdom. Well, it's authors in August for Rule Breaker Investing. And first up this month is my guest and new friend, Warren Berger. Warren is a questionologist. You may never have heard of such a thing. We'll talk about it. The author of the seminal work, A More Beautiful Question, Warren has helped many people and organizations help arrive at breakthrough ideas and fresh thinking by harnessing the power of questioning. If I do my job well this month, not only will you understand what a questionologist does by the end of this podcast, you might want to become one yourself. The power of questions to unleash the greater good in your life and mine, this week on Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Boy, I'm I'm rubbing my hands together. I hope you can hear that because I love August. And why do I love August? Because every August on Rule Breaker Investing, it's authors in August. So I try to read at least a few books a year and the very best ones, the ones that inspire me, I I asked my good friend Maggie Dorn here at The Motley Fool to do part of what she does full-time, which is to reach out and make connections with some of the authors of my favorite books. And Maggie is really good at this, and so she has landed, once again, this month, four spectacular authors of four spectacular books. I've talked about it the last few weeks. I hope you've done your assigned reading, because this week on Rule Breaker Investing, we have Warren Berger, the author of a more beautiful question. Warren also wrote more recently, The Book of Beautiful Questions. Yep, he's a questionologist, and we're going to talk about that very shortly when I welcome him on. I do want to mention that next week we're going to have Chris McDougall, author of the wonderful book Natural Born Heroes. And then a little bit later this month, as we keep our summer beach reading going at Rule Breaker Investing, we're going to have Ed Glazer, the Harvard economist, the author of the wonderful book. Triumph of the City, and we're going to close it out with Joseph Grenny, one of the authors of another critical piece of reading in my in my mind. I hope yours. Maybe you've read it. Crucial Conversations. So Joseph Grenny joining us later this month. So that's what we have on tap for August. Joining me today for this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is Warren Berger, best-selling author, acclaimed business journalist, innovation expert, and probably the most unique role and title out there, a famed. Questionologist. Now, as a questionologist, Warren helps companies and innovators arrive at breakthrough ideas and fresh thinking by harnessing the power of questioning. Over the years, he's studied and analyzed how innovators, business leaders, and creative thinkers use questions to solve big problems and spark positive change and create new opportunities. Through his work, he uncovered that the most successful people always asked questions. Well, after this show, I encourage you all to visit Warren's website, amorebeautifulquestion.com, and of course, to read his books, A More Beautiful Question, and most recently, The Book of Beautiful Questions, books that I have read in full and that have inspired me to ask more beautiful questions in my life and work. Warren, thank you for being with us today on Rule Breaker Investing. Oh, David, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. Well, call me Ishmael, but I love the starts of books. So, Warren, I want to start with the first few sentences of your most recent book. You write, 
I am a questionologist. You may be asking yourself, is that really a thing? I asked myself that very question a few years ago, then I did some research which turned up hundreds of different types of ologists, ranging from the acarologist, who studies ticks and mites, to the zoologist. But searching among the cues you went on, Warren, I found no entry for questionologists, and this led me to inquire, why not? Isn't the study of questions as worthy of classification as the study of ticks and mites? So, Warren, you've introduced something new to the taxonomy. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm working on it. You know, I'm not the only um, questionologist out there. There's, there's probably about, I don't know, eight to ten of us roaming around uh, in the U.S. alone, not, not counting how many might be out there in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I talk to some of the other people from time to time and say, hey, we've got to We've got to turn this into an official, uh, an official thing, and, uh, and we're kind of working on that. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, when I go to universities, sometimes I talk to them about it and say, hey, would you like to establish a department of questionology within your university? That might be a good first step towards getting this to be official. And in some ways, it sounds a little silly because it's a word that we can kind of piece together. It's like a portmanteau word. At the yeah. same time, as one starts to read a more beautiful question, I start to realize you're so right. It's such an important thing to study and get good at. Now, I think we should define our terms, Warren. So, if I have it right, you're defining a beautiful question this way. You wrote, it's an ambitious yet actionable question that can begin to shift the way we perceive or think about something and that might serve as a catalyst to bring about change. Right, and that's that's exactly right, and that's that's a totally subjective definition. You know, other people would have their own definition of a beautiful question. A poet would probably uh, define a beautiful question as something that's worded in an elegant, uh, poetic way. Mm -hmm. You know, but to me, um, I focused on I focused on ambitious and at the same time actionable. And then I was interested in things that bring about change. So, so I, that's how I came to that definition. I was looking at, I was interested in the kind of questions that someone might ask that they could then pursue and that possibly that would lead them to some kind of a new insight, uh, a change in their behavior. Maybe it would lead to a new product, a breakthrough innovation. Um, so, so I'm interested in questioning from that aspect. You know, how can we use it? How can we find that big question that's going to lead to some kind of an important shift or change, even if it's only a shift in our own thinking? Okay, mm-hmm. it could just be a shift in the way we view something. Um, that's what I'm. That's what I'm interested in. Those kinds of questions. It would be a big mistake for me not to, as quickly as possible, then get past our intro material and have you give us an example, Warren, of a beautiful question, either one from the past, maybe that sparked a business, or yeah. one that you have on your mind today. Yeah. Well, when I think of beautiful questions, I mean, there's there's a ton of of great ones. I mean, the um, one that one that inspired me and continues to inspire me today is the is that is that classic uh, question. You know. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And that's a question that goes back a couple of decades. Um, it was being asked by a by a pastor originally, but now it's been embraced in Silicon Valley as a as a question that people ask to try to remove temporarily remove the constraints of fear of failure so they can really think big and think in the most ambitious way. So I love that kind of question. I love any kind of question that either imposes constraints or removes constraints. 
you know, um, imposing constraints would be, you know, what if I only had 24 hours to live? What would I do? Okay, you're imposing the artificial constraint of 24 hours to get yourself to think in a different way. And then, you know, removing constraints would, might be like, what if money was no object and we're developing this product and what if we had an unlimited budget? Okay, that's removing constraints, again, for the same purpose to try to get yourself to think um, uh, creatively. So, so I love those kinds of questions. And then from a historical uh, standpoint, mm-hmm. let's say to think of a, like a historical question that brought about a big breakthrough, um, I love the story of the Polaroid instant camera, which, which started when the, uh, the four-year-old daughter of Edwin Land, the founder, um, said, uh, asked him the question, why do we have to wait for the picture? Uh, he had taken a photo of her with an old-fashioned camera from, from back in the day, back in the 40s, and he said, you know, we can't see the picture right now. It's got to be sent out to be developed. She asked him, why do we have to wait? You know, why do we have to wait for the picture? <laughs> and Edwin Land was, uh, he just his, his thinking was shifted by that question. He, he suddenly started to ask that question himself. Why do we have to wait? And, and what if we didn't have to wait? What if we actually, what if the, the camera could actually um, show you the results right away? And it led to, um, it initiated the process of developing the instant camera. So to me, that's a great example of a beautiful question because it's, it, it, you know, it was, it was this big ambitious question that led to a, uh, a change. And a really important one, and really the history of technology. And you cover a bunch of stories looking back over our past, technology, business, and history, uh, looking at just different situations where somebody asked a question that nobody had thought of, or phrased it in a way, often a positive way, we're going to talk about that in a sec, that catalyzed good kinds of change in the world. And Warren, you say this in the book, but basically, these questions typically start with words like why, which is what you just used an example of, what if, how questions, because you say those can't be answered with simple facts. You can't just Google the answers to these kinds of questions. They generally tend to encourage creative thinking more than closed yes or no questions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You'll find most um, breakthrough questions, like the, the question that led to Netflix, the question that led to Airbnb, you'll find that most of them begin with a why. And there's a good reason for that. Um, generally, open-ended questions are going to lead to change. You know, why and how and what if, those are, those are very open-ended questions. But there's a particular reason why why is, um, is so connected to, um, to change. And it's because innovators often start out looking at the existing reality and um, they're looking at the way things are right now and they're detecting a problem or they're detecting something that's missing, a need that's not being met. And their first reaction when they see that is to ask why, right? Their first reaction when they see something's missing, something's not right, something's not as good as it should be, they invariably will step back and ask, why is that the case? Why hasn't someone come up with a better mousetrap? Um, why do we still have to do this thing the way we were doing it before? So why ends up uh, being the, uh, the starter question. Mm-hmm. That's the question that kind of gets people going. Um, it gets you to try to think about a problem and why it's a problem in the first place and why you might want to take it on as your own 
challenge or your own problem. So it's very much the starter question for innovation, but it's not the end or ending question. It's, it's only the beginning, and I, and I found innovators tend to cycle through other types of questions once they've asked that initial uh, why question. So what is the opposite, then, of a beautiful question? Um, I, I think of counterfeit questions. <laughs> um, and, uh, and when I say a counterfeit question, um, that would be a question that's not really a question, <laughs> because um, often, to me, a question should have some curiosity behind it. You know, you should be really be wondering about something. Whereas if you ask, um, you know, a rhetorical uh, like, uh, question like, are you crazy? Or, you know, why would anyone want to do something like that? You know, um, I find those kinds of questions are, um, I don't like them because they, they're, uh, there's no curiosity. They're often um, judgment uh, disguised as a question. So to me, those are the kinds of questions that, that give me a hard time. And, I, and when I talk about this with leaders, with business leaders, uh, you know, I, I point that out to them that, you know, uh, don't count those kinds of questions when you when you think of yourself as a question asker. You know, don't count those rhetorical um, questions where you really aren't interested in in the answer. You think you know the answer already. Um, you know, those don't count. Those are kind of counterfeit questions. And indeed, uh, in A More Beautiful Question, you introduce the concept to the reader of appreciative inquiry. I think this comes from David Cooperider, the Case Western professor. I'm going to quote just a little bit of your book, because this is an important point related to what you just said. You write, what may be even more important is the tone of questions. Confronted with a challenge or problem, one could respond with the question, oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> Faced with the same situation, though, one might ask, what if this change represents an opportunity for us? How might we make the most of the situation. So you go on to say questions of the second type with a more positive tone will tend to yield better answers. And Cooper Ryder, Dr. Cooper Ryder, calls this popular theory appreciative inquiry. Yeah, it's it's really a, a great um, um, uh, system he's come up with and a great concept. And um, and I think it's it's really important in the business world. Um, I mean, I think. You know, Cooper Ryder, when I was talking about this with him, he, he said that, you know, he'd, he'd done some research or so, seen some research on this, and he said something like 80% of business meetings start with a problem, start with talking about a problem. And, and, you know, so everyone gets in the room and says, you know, we have this problem, and what are we going to do about it? And he said, you know, that automatically starts things in this kind of uh, negative, panicky <laughs> direction. Mm. So, so, you know, part of his thinking was, you know, you just have to shift the attitude. Um, the problems are, are real. You know, they're not going to go away. Um, you have to address them. You have to deal with them. But the attitude you bring to it can make a huge difference. And so if you, you know, if you're looking at a problem and you, and you, you frame the questions around it as, you know, okay, uh, there's an issue here, but, but what are we doing right? And, and what can we build on? Um, in our strengths that might address what's not working here. Yeah. So uh, he said, that's a, you know, as he points out, that's a lot better than, than kind of the saying, you know, we have this problem, who's to blame, uh, who screwed up here? You know, those are the kind of questions that put everyone on the defensive and that, uh, you know, that, that really make it harder to, to move forward on the problem. 
And the scope of our time together this week, we're going to be talking some more about business. I'm going to try to get into investing a little bit, but also life. All three of these things are really important to me and to this podcast. Let's stick with, let's go a business angle a little bit more because you just introduced this concept of uh, brainstorming at a corporate meeting where we're all sitting around the table and something's wrong. We need to figure out how to get out of that. And I love the, the conceit that you introduce, which is maybe it's not about, you say, brainstorming, but but question storming. Could you yeah. explain what that is? Yeah, question storming. Well, the idea behind that is, you know, um, the more questions we can come up with, um, the more we are starting to look at the problem from different angles. You know, questions, questioning is interesting. Questioning forces you to uh, shift perspective and, and look at a problem from the side and from underneath and from above. So it, it's, uh, you, ha- you almost have to do that to formulate questions around the problem. So, you know, what has been discovered by people who've been doing this, and, and I, I kind of um, latched onto this, it's being done, um, uh, there's a group called the Right Question Institute mm-hmm. that has been doing this kind of question formulation, rapid-fire question formulation for years. Um, they do it mostly in the world of education. They're trying to get teachers to do this with students because it seems to open up your thinking. When you're, when you're forced to come up with a lot of questions uh, very quickly on a topic, it really um, opens up your, your thinking on, the, on that topic or on that subject. So I have been taking it and trying now to introduce this concept in, um, in the business world as well to say, hey, this it not only works in education, it works in, in business when, when, you're, when you're trying to come up with a, uh, a solution to a problem. You know, the, the, the typical brainstorming method is to shoot ideas out there. Well, the problem with that is, you know, number one, not everyone has good ideas, especially when you're initially thinking about a problem. So you end up with a lot of ideas that are not right or don't make sense. Um, and number two, people are leery sometimes of sharing their ideas. So what happens often in brainstorming sessions is the same guy, and it's often a guy, um, <laughs> is the one putting out all the ideas, right, and ends up dominating the brainstorming um, session. Now, what's different with questions, if you, you get a group together of six or eight people and you say, okay, we're all going to formulate questions, mm. everyone, everyone can do that. Everyone can come up with questions, you know. So it, it tends to be much more uh, participatory and you, uh, you'll get uh, a group of six people coming up with, you know, 40 or 50 questions uh, on a topic when you put them to work on it. And then within those questions, some really interesting ideas will, will emerge. You know, people will say, well, gee, it's interesting. A lot of our questions seem to be addressing this particular theme. So maybe that's where we need to be focusing mm-hmm. is on this aspect of the problem. And um, so it's just really interesting. So, so I will do that. I'll have people come up with 40, 30, 40 questions um, on a problem. Then I'll say, okay, let's, let's try to identify the three best questions. And then let's, let's see, let's talk about what we can do with those three questions. Um, if we were to act on them, if we were to try to do more research on them, what would we do starting tomorrow? And Warren, is this your professional life? We're getting away from the book for a second and just talking about Warren Berger, the Working professional, are you traveling around to organizations and holding question storming yeah. sessions? What do you do yeah, out there? I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. You know, um, I'm going to the Walt Disney Company uh, next next week or in two weeks from now, and uh, was at Starbucks a couple of weeks ago. So I'm going to different companies and um, 
they've they've found the book and they are all interested in this concept of questioning now they're all interested in it for different reasons you know they're all coming at it from different angles mm-hmm. um i would say the one common thread uh in almost everybody that i'm talking to almost every business that i'm talking to has to do with change um everybody is just dealing with rapid and massive change and it has thrown the, everyone for a loop on some, in some way or on some level. And so everyone is in that situation of, gee, you know, we, we thought we'd figured out how to do things. And now all of a sudden it feels like because of technology or lifestyle changes or demographic changes, globaliz- globalization, whatever, um, we feel like we almost have to reinvent a lot of what we're doing, or we have to rethink a lot of what we're doing. And to do that, we have to ask a lot of questions and we have to become curious again. We have to become almost uh, entrepreneurial in our thinking. We have to go back, we have to embrace beginner's mind. We have to do all these things that a questioner does. And, um, and in order to, to, to do that, you know, we, we have to, well, that, that's what that's when we start doing exercises and things like that. You know, we start saying, well, you know, or I start saying to them, look, these are some things you can do that will open up that kind of questioning thinking. Uh, And the other thing I will talk to these organizations about is that they're very interested in, okay, if we want to get everyone in our organization to be asking more questions, uh, what do we have to do? I mean, what kind of a signal do we have to put out there to people? Do we yep. have to change the culture? What, what, is, what exactly do we have to do? And I'll, you know, I don't have you know, the, all the answers on that um, because I'm a questionologist, don't forget. But, um, <laughs> but I do have some thoughts on you know, what, it is, what kind of an environment uh, tends to inspire curiosity and questioning and, and what kind of an environment is more likely to, to quash it. All right. Well, the second half of my talk with Warren will continue. But first, thanks to NetSuite for supporting Rule Breaker Investing, introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. It's called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. It's at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash fool. Since we're talking about some public companies and some of our more successful stock recommendations that we've made to Motley Fool members over the decades, Disney, Starbucks, you just referenced a couple. Let me ask you about, you referenced earlier Netflix and Airbnb, and you said there was a question at the root of their innovation or their formation. Can you briefly, just for our listeners, articulate the questions that Netflix and Airbnb asked? Yeah, well, in Netflix's case, it was based uh, totally on a personal experience of, of the founder, uh, Reed uh, Hastings. And, um, and his, his experience was he, he was renting videos from Blockbuster, and, uh, which, boy, boy, Blockbuster, doesn't that seem like an ancient, uh, an ancient concept? But, um, but he was renting videos from Blockbuster, 
kept them uh, too long, got hit with a huge late fee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he starts asking questions about that. He says, you know, why do I have to pay these late fees? And, and what if uh, you had a, why hasn't someone come up with a, a, you know, a a movie uh, rental system that allows people to watch it in their own time and the way they want to watch it? Um, And then he was questioning, like, um, well, what if you could develop a system that was more like a health club you know, where you had a monthly membership. And so your, your dues were based on that rather than the amount of time that you have the movie. Mm. So, so those were all the beginnings of, you know, of, of him uh, coming up with the Netflix idea. And then in the case of Airbnb, you know, that was a couple of college students um, or co- college graduates. And um, they, they had, were design students. And, and they had noticed that whenever the, the big design conference would come to town in San Francisco, um, all the hotels got booked, right? And nobody could get a room. But at the same time, you know, they realized they had uh, an air mattress and uh, they, they knew friends who had like an empty p- apartment or an empty room in an apartment or had an extra sofa bed. So their question was, you know, why is it that you have all these people who, who need a bed and can't get one? And at the same time, you have all these people who, who have a bed or a room or something, <laughs> and, and they don't have anyone to use it. And what if you could connect those two things together? And that became the basis of their, you know, their effort to, to launch Airbnb. So, um, so it, it, it's really interesting. Now, those initial questions then you know, give way to all kinds of other questions. You know, how, how can we use the Internet to, do, to connect all of this? And um, you know, how are we going to deal with the concerns people have about staying in someone else's apartment. What could we do to make them feel better about that? Or, or you know, so so the, the initial question, which is as I said, is often a why question, then gives way to lots of other questions that have to be answered in order to get to the to the final um, the final innovation. Yeah, and, then, and of course it never ends because because then you introduce the. The, the concept out into the world, and it's very successful, but all of a sudden a problem crops up, right? And, um, and then you have to say, you know, what are we going to do about this issue? Or why is this problem coming up? And what can we do to address it? Or what if we try this? What if we try that? And so there are different approaches to questioning. And I'm going to give two different examples from business, both from your, your books, Warren. But one of them is a systematic approach, and uh, I think of it as Toyota's approach, and it's the five whys, yeah. W-H-Y, approach that Toyota has employed. Could you just tell the story of Toyota and the five whys? Yeah, the five whys basically came about because the, the founder of, of Toyota, um, whose name was Toyota, <laughs> with a D, though, mm-hmm. um, uh, he uh, had had developed this um, this idea that, you know, when a problem came up at Toyota, um, everyone tended to go to the most obvious um, uh, cause, the most obvious reason for the problem. So if a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a part came off the line and it was defective, everyone would assume, oh, it's because the, um, the, the guy on the assembly line messed up. And then they wouldn't go any further than that. And his thinking was that you had to go deeper than that. You had to, you had to ask why, not just once, but you had to ask it repeatedly so that you would ask, okay, why did the part get screwed up? Um, the, the, assembly, the assembly worker, you know, messed up. Okay, why did the assembly worker mm. mess up? 
well, you know, he, he wasn't trained on that particular new uh, part. Uh, why wasn't he trained well enough on that new part? Well, you know, we, we've had to cut some funds from the training program to go into marketing. So his feeling was if you did this five times, um, you would get to the, the real source of the problem, you know, the real, the root cause of the problem. And I think it's a great exercise to do. I don't, I don't know that it always works. Um, I think sometimes the five whys will, you'll end up going off in a, (laughs) in a funny direction. Sometimes it won't always take you to the root cause. It'll take you off to the side a little bit. Um, But I I certainly think it's worth doing. It's, it's worth trying. It only positive things can come from it because if it leads you off track, you'll, you'll pretty much realize that. And uh, so I like it. I think it's great. Um, uh, and I even, you know, talk about it when I go to schools and talk to talk with teachers. I think teachers mm-hmm. should teach kids the five whys in school because, you know, it, it's a great way to look at problems and to understand that there's usually a problem beneath the problem. And there's and, and when you're looking for root causes, you know, you've got to go down several levels to get to the real the real cause. And I do think that there is a lot of value there. Of course, it can be annoying. Sometimes you only needed to ask two or three whys, and you're down at the sixth one, and people are just bothered that you keep asking them why. So it can backfire, as you've pointed out. But oh yeah, I- and 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 by the way, I think the five is somewhat random. You know, the <laughs> the five levels because it's who know it, it could be three levels that get you to it. It could be six levels. So um, I think the Toyota, you know, when when they it, when they introduced that concept. I think five was kind of a random uh, a level. They seem to feel that, that that worked more often than not, that, that it was five, but I don't think it has to be five. Sure. So I think of that as kind of a more systematic approach. And of course, Toyota, very successful company for decades. And um, while I'm sure they don't do it every day on every, in every factory, it's obviously kind of a cultural conceit that really, I think, has no doubt created great value uh, for Toyota. Yeah. Let's go from there, a systematic approach to, toward a more um, well, seemingly novice approach. You used the phrase earlier, beginner's mind. Now, one of the better entrepreneurs of our time, Steve Jobs, was profoundly influenced by, I think it was the work of, I'm going to go with Shunryu Suzuki, but his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah. You, you reference that in your, in your book, Warren. Uh, you say in his book, Suzuki writes, quote, The mind of the beginner is empty, free of the habits of the expert. And such right. a mind, he added, is, quotes, open to all possibilities and, quotes, conceive things as they are. Now, I know this is very important for Steve Jobs to kind of approach, you know, doing a phone completely differently, or how about just an iPod back in the day, rethinking computers. And more recently, I've heard Jeff Bezos refer to this uh, frequently, beginner's mind. So, we're getting back here to, to beginners, to, to being little kids again, asking curious questions, not like the Toyota approach, but um, we're not afraid of looking stupid as we ask these questions using our beginner's mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that you know the people sometimes talk about the uh, the trap of expertise, you know, and 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 being an expert is a wonderful thing, but there is a downside in that it will keep you from looking at things sometimes in a in a fresh way. And it will when you're an expert all kinds of assumptions uh are developed. Uh you know that you've kind of figured out the way things are supposed to work. And um, and so what beginner's mind is doing or is attempting to do is to is to kind of cast aside those assumptions and all of that expertise and to say, you know, if we were looking at this as if we were a novice or as if we were seeing it for the first time, 
um, what would we think about it? What, what questions would we ask? Uh, would it make sense? Would the systems we're using make sense? Um, so it's really important. And I, I think jobs used to use it not only in terms of products, you know, like you mentioned, the iPhone. Um, he used to use it as a way to run the company. And so he would go around to the accounting department and say to the guy in the accounting department, you know, um, what book, what system are you using for bookkeeping? Okay, why? Why are you using that system? Um, he would go into the shipping department. Why are we using this particular approach when we're doing shipping? And he would force people to kind of go back to the basics. Mm. And uh, he did not accept the answer that's just the way we do it. You know, that was not acceptable to him or to say, well, we've been doing that way for the past 10 years. No good. That's not what he wants to hear. He wanted to hear the reason, the rationale uh, for why you originally started doing it that way. And does that still make sense right now? And it's really important for business to do this kind of thing, because, you know, especially in a time of dynamic change, something that made sense five years ago might not make sense now. So that's where beginner's mind is so important, mm. you know, to, to come in and say, look at things with that fresh perspective and ask those really fundamental basic questions like, why are we doing things the way we're doing them? I know it can drive people crazy, you know, in, in meetings, sometimes people say, come on, we've, we don't have to go back to basics here. We're supposed to know this stuff already. But there is a real value sometimes in that kind of naive uh, questioning. So, yes, beginner's mind, and I'm thinking of a couple of examples right now. I want to talk about baseball in just a little bit, and then about investing, where we're going to go next. But first, you mentioned over the course of, this is, I think, in your first book, you're quoting the MIT professor Todd Mockover, um, who, among other things, helped create the popular video game Guitar Hero. And yeah. you wrote, quote, Mockover says it's not uncommon for breakthrough ideas to come from people who are working outside their area of expertise because the novices are able to see a problem with a fresh eye, forget about what's easy or hard, and not worry about what other people in that field have done. Why can't we have that photo right away, Daddy? So, um, given that I'm an English major with no formal training or degree in finance, uh, Warren, I absolutely appreciate this point because um, my brother Tom and I have helped create a, a company dedicated to the stock market, and you wouldn't think that that would have right. worked. But I want to go actually to baseball. Very much on my mind this summer. I don't, are you a baseball fan? Oh yeah, yeah, I love baseball. Great. So I mean, I think of Bill James as a great example of somebody who came from outside of baseball. Mm. He was really just a journalist, but he started asking beautiful questions like, yeah. "Why? Why does everybody think you should bunt with a man yes. on first, nobody out in the eighth inning, down one run? What if you didn't bunt?" Or and so so much of Moneyball and really the revolution of analytics in baseball has, in my mind anyway, been driven by. One beautiful question, largely from James and his ilk after another. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a great example. And you could take that same you know, uh, example and, or that same idea and apply it to, I think, any industry. Um, or, and, and it's just that what was going on in baseball was assumptions you know, um, that had solidified over time mm, into, into hard and fast rules. And, uh, you know, the scouts... Uh, we're, we're, we're suffering from that, uh, that uh, trap of expertise. You know, the scouts who had been scouting players and, and uh, for so long had kind of 
thought they'd figured it all out, you know. And and so that's what happens when when a when a beautiful questioner comes along, they they start you know, going up to all the experts and saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, why? why? Why should I accept your word that this is the way to do it, you know? And it, it tends to create a lot of friction, you know, when, when someone does that. You, you can imagine that, you know, when, when James was raising these questions in baseball, that a lot of the, the old guard, uh, you know, the, the scouts and the, and, the, and the general managers who'd been doing things the old way. You bet. You know, they were like, who is this guy and where does he, you know, we've He's never played this. the game. He never played the game. We've been doing this for X number of years. How can <laughs> someone who has so little experience in the game itself be telling us what to do? You know, that sounds good when someone says that. It sounds, it sounds logical. But the fact of the matter is, it's not taking into account the fact that when people are inside a world and they're very steeped in it, oftentimes they're the last ones to see something. You know, it's like, it's like that phenomenon when, when you're too close to something and you can't really see it because it's right next to your face. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it is for those people. You know, they're, they're close. They're really close to it. And so there, is, there are things that they just don't see because uh, they're not looking for them, you know. And so the, the great thing that an outsider brings is, you know, an outsider brings a fresh perspective and an outsider is looking an outsider is actually looking for stuff you know they're open their mind is open and their eyes are open and they're looking and so they're going to see things that the insider just doesn't see and part of what worked for bill james was uh, the black box revolution that was behind him the tailwind of computing and big data and certainly the the ultimate proof positive the best answers to James's questions were often data driven answers and he was the one who pointed everybody to the data in the first place to say hey yeah. if you did it differently look what happens and right. sure enough all of the changes that we've seen including most recently the idea that starting pitchers wouldn't even throw past the sixth inning most of the time when you and I grew up with starting pitchers who yeah. had 23 complete games. This is just in one generation, let's say just a fraction of a lifetime, how much that, that has changed. So I wanted to ask you about data-driven answers. Um, is, is that the most powerful form of answer that we can give to a beautiful question? What is your evaluation of this increasingly data-driven society it seems like we're living in? Well, I think data has to be questioned just as much as everything else. You know, so, so I think in the same way that you have to question assumptions that are free of, free of data, you also have to question um, uh, ideas and assumptions that are based entirely around data. Because it may be that the data is either um, not right, or it may be that, the, that someone is misinterpreting the data, uh, that someone may be cherry-picking from the data. So you, you have to say, you have to ask about the data, you know, about data-driven decisions. Okay, what is the, da- what is the data really telling us, mm-hmm. you know? And is it being, are we interpreting it the right way? And are we focusing on the right things in, in the data, or are we maybe focusing on the wrong things? So... I don't think data is a, is is free of this this issue. You know, I mean, I don't think it's the it's the be all and end all. I think that uh, it is it is something that must be questioned just as much as anything else. But I do think it's a, it's a great um, resource for questioners because it, it gives them something they can they can dig into with their questions. And there's a lot of um, material to to direct your questions toward when you're dealing with data. And I think that really, if you look at um, a lot of the change that's going on in the, in the business world now, 
um, it is being driven by questions that in turn are being driven by data, technology, new things, new possibilities, right? So when, you, when you're in a world that has tons of information available and tons of new technology available, it means you can ask questions uh, that you could never ask before. You know, you, you have the possibility of saying, hey, now that we have all this data, wow, what can we do now? You know, what are the possibilities now? My gosh, they're almost endless, you know? So I think of this as a great time for questioners because they're armed with all this, um, all of these resources that enable them to ask great questions. But I do want to say that I think that the data are answers, right? And, and it's still, and so machines, from my view, I'm probably going to be proven wrong uh, about this, David, eventually. <laughs> I think it's, I know where you're headed here. Yep. Yeah, artificial intelligence is going mm-hmm. to prove me wrong on this at some point. But for now, I still maintain that machines are the, the answers are the domain of mach- machines. Answers are what machines and technology are really good at. Questions are still um, what humans are good at. You know, I still believe in, you know, what Picasso said uh, 50 years ago when, when he said, you know, computers only give us answers. You know, it's up to the humans to, to, to ask the questions. And so I but I do think that's where our edge is. You know, I, I think we we're the ones that should be asking the great questions. And then the 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 um, the data and is the machines are great for storing endless amounts of answers Mm -hmm. that we can then access. Okay, from sports, which is admittedly one of my favorite topics, I go to another of them. Warren, you're writing often about business. You're not necessarily focused on sports as much. I didn't see a lot about investing, necessarily, although I know the power of questions extends everywhere. And you're like a polymath. You're not an inch deep, not at all, but you're definitely at least a mile wide with the focus of your work. But honing in briefly on on rule breaker investing, so one of my uh, reflections is that uh, a forerunner of my own thinking was William O'Neill, who began to say, what are the best performing stocks of the past generation, and what traits do they share? And I think I first read his book, How to Make Money in Stocks, and I really appreciate that he was focused, most of all, on the stocks themselves, and which were the monster winners and looking for traits, when it seemed like everybody else was raised on Benjamin Graham, an intelligent investor, and like the ways to value things. So, I want to start there, but I've tried to articulate like my beautiful question on this podcast for kind of my investing approach, and here's the best I've come up with so far, and it's, why do the most highly esteemed investment books of yore typically cause their fans to miss the best stocks of our own time? Ah, interesting. That's as beautiful a question as I can articulate in terms of my own approach to investing. So I've always appreciated the almost Jamesian focus that O'Neill had on empirical results. Yeah. And if you did train your focus there, and darn it, if you're going to give investment advice through a website or invest your own money, you're going to try to win. You know, it was ironic to me that a lot of the things that I initially read and so many people, let's say, in an investment club or learning about investing, they didn't actually learn how to find Amazon or Netflix or the list goes on Tesla, these kinds of companies. So that's a really interesting area of, I think, hidden value that's emerged in the last 10 or 20 years. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so you were, yeah, yeah and, and I think, um, you know, I'd love to ask you something, which is, you know, when I, um, when I look at people who are innovators, as you are in, in your area, 
I find that they often, as I said earlier, they're starting with that why, and they're they're trying to understand um, they're trying to understand a a, a shortcoming or a, a problem, as you just articulated in that beautiful question you said. But then they often will will then um, move to the next stage of saying, well, well, what if what if you could then do this instead, or or how might you instead of taking that old approach, try this other approach. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, based on that initial um, beautiful question you asked, whether that led to um, a second generation or third generation where you said, okay, I think I understand what was going wrong with the way they, people were looking at the old investment books or what, what they were trying to teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, did that lead to a next generation question where you said, well, what if you could instead approach it this way, or, or how might we um, approach it in a different way? Yeah, I would say definitely, and I would say it's been evident our we- on our website for 20 years, but it's how might we identify pattern recognition or the traits around the companies that will be the best stocks of our Great. generation. Yeah, And so, yeah. it, from that emerge six traits that we look for in investments, and then mm-hmm. we, we then turn the focus in on ourselves as investors, and what are six traits that you and I should be exhibiting in order to right. make sure that we win with these stocks. Because it's one thing to identify AOL early on, or Amazon early on. It's another to actually hold on to that stock through thick and through thin so that you can make many times your money in a world where certainly Wall Street trades in and out you know, in a single year of these companies, and there's very little real value creation with the best stocks of our time. So, yeah, I would say that that's those are the that's second and third so generation that, and, questions that we ask. And I'm sure as you, were, as you were then identifying each of those traits, you were probably questioning those traits and saying, why is this particular trait important, and what, what is it about this trait that 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 you know that stands out? And and I think that's it's interesting how just that um, that initial question will usually lead to many many other questions that that then kind of help the idea or the concept to take shape. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking at my watch, Warren. I'm starting to think that. The candle is is burning out. My time with you, your time, too valuable to spend a second hour with us on Rule Breaker Investing. So, before time runs out, I want to make sure I get a couple quick questions in. Let me just go right back to the practical for a sec for my listeners. So, we've got a master questionologist with us this week. And how about a quick how to guide? Really just answering, let's say, this question, Warren. Could you give us two or three steps or, or tips for each of us to become a better, more beautiful, Questioner, do's or don'ts. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing to do is is accept the idea that you need to step back and question more. Um, we all need to do it. It takes a little bit of time, uh, and so people uh, tend to not do it. They tend to be very um, uh, forward moving, and so they they just want to get stuff done, make quick decisions. Um, and so I think you need to start by saying hey, it's worth it every once in a while to slow down. Questioning is a form of uh, what's known as slow thinking. It's, every, it's worth it every once in a while to slow down and ask yourself some questions, some basic questions like, you know, uh, why am I going down this particular path, um, whether it's my investing path, whether it's my career path? Um, you know, have I thought it through? Um, what, what is the alternative that I should be considering, maybe a different way? Um, you just want to go th- run through those questions because uh, it, it will force your mind to think it through a little more. doesn't mean your initial instinct is wrong. It 
doesn't mean you shouldn't keep doing exactly what you're doing, but you should subject it to some questioning and just to make sure it holds up and just to, you know, just to, to be sure it's rooted in some, uh, some good solid thinking and maybe some evidence if you can if you have, to have time to do some research. Um, I advise all of us to just you know, accept that that's important and try to find some time to do it. Um, another tip I'll give you is um, you know, I, I just like the framework of asking uh, why, what if, and how. Um, and think about using those three questions a lot in that order uh, when you're trying to solve problems, when you're mm. trying to tackle big important issues. Um, when you ask why, you're, you're, you're sort of trying to understand the basis of a challenge or problem. Mm-hmm. Um, why am I doing things? Why, why am I doing things the way I'm doing them? Why am I having this problem? Uh, why is it so hard to get X done? Why are our customers uh, complaining about this? So you start with why, and that's an attempt to understand the problem that's in front of you. Then your next question is what if. Uh, what if is about um, considering alternative alternative ideas or possibilities. So you say, okay, I understand why the problem exists. What if we tried this? What if we tried that? Mm. Um, you, you get your mind to think about various what-if possibilities. And then the last stage is how. You know, when you've come up with um, uh, a bunch of what-if ideas in your head, um, think about uh, focusing on one a good one, the best one, and saying, you know, how do I actually act on this? How could I actually begin to make this a, a, a real possibility? Uh, is there any little test I could try? How could I, how could I experiment with it in a small way that might not be too risky? Um, uh, how much would it cost me to do it? How hard would it be to do? So I, I tend to think, you know, we, when we're solving problems, when we're innovating, when we're, even when we're making decisions in, in our lives, you know, about where we're going to live or if we're going to move, move somewhere, do this why, what, if, how uh, exercise, and uh, you'll be surprised at how effective it can be. I love that. Why, then what if, then how. Yep. It occurs to me to ask Warren, what's the what's the beautiful question that I should be asking you about beautiful questions? Wow, uh, <laughs> the beautiful question about beautiful questions is um, is how can we uh, get ourselves to ask more of them? Mm. Uh, and that's a big, big, uh, big question. I, I mean, I've started to get into the world of education now because I think it starts young. Mm. You know, I think that. Um, uh, we can all be beautiful questioners, and we can become beautiful questioners at any stage in our lives. But I think it helps a lot if you're if you're in the habit of doing this when you're young. And and um, and so I'm I'm going to schools now. I'm actually writing my new book that I'm writing is actually for the education world, and and it's it's about you know can we create um, a culture of inquiry in our classrooms where kids are more curious, where they're asking more questions. Um, and where they're not so obsessed with just memorizing answers, you know. So that's a big challenge. That's a big thing to take on. It's a sort of taking on the system of education. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's a, I think the, the general question is, you know, how can we get people to do more of this? Um, how can we get companies to encourage this kind of thinking and this kind of questioning? Because if they do, they're going to reap some good benefits from it. I mean, they're going to they're going to tap into the creativity of their own people. They're going to tap into the intelligence, the collective intelligence of their people. Um, they're going to get pe- people are going to be more satisfied at work if they're using their curiosity and their questioning. But you have to create an environment where where they feel comfortable doing it and where the questions are uh, appreciated. So so that's kind of where where I'm at, and that's that's what I think the big question. That's the sixty four thousand dollar question is how do we 
you know, how do we get people to do more of it? How do we create environments that uh, that encourage more questioning? Well, and I love your focus, therefore, on the classroom, and it sounds like that is your new book. Do you have that one slated to come out in 2019, 2020? Where are you on Yeah, that, that one is in, in uh, uh, spring of 2020, mm-hmm. and, um, and it will be, um, you know, staying with the idea of beautiful questions, it will be um, beautiful questions in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's where um, I'm going with that, and I think it's, and it's fun. I mean, it's really fun. To t- I've been talking to a lot of teachers about it, and, you know, teachers are really into this idea of, you know, how do we get you know, the students to be more curious and ask more questions. And a lot of them have great ideas for how to do it, but they're a little bit handcuffed by, the, uh, by a school system that, you know, frankly was developed in the, in the, in the age of uh, factories and is all about, you know, getting kids to behave and memorize answers. So yep. it's a big challenge. Yep. Memorize, respond, rinse, and repeat. <laughs> and repeat. Such that's a, right. That's, that's what you're rewarded for, you know. So. Yeah. And I guess the best teachers are the ones that ask questions of their students that they themselves don't know the answer to. Absolutely. But, you know, a lot of teachers, uh, you need confidence to do that as a teacher. You, you know, a lot of teachers feel like, oh, gosh, if, if, if there's a question and I don't know the answer, it's going to make me look bad in front of the students. So they have that same problem that all of us have with questions where, where sometimes we don't have the confidence. Uh, we're, a little too, we're a little too scared about not having answers. And we shouldn't be because, you know, beautiful questions, nobody sh- expects you to have the answers. Uh, they're, they're big. They're ambitious. Uh, you're not supposed to know the answer off the top of your head, but you should be willing to ask it and willing to pursue it. All right, a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. Any other authors or books that you're reading right now that you would recommend, real quick? Oh, well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, the work of Adam Grant. Uh, and uh, My favorite book by him, I, I like all of his books, mm-hmm. Originals is a great one, but my favorite is uh, his, his, his first big book, Give and Take. And I think that's, uh, you know, must-read for, uh, for anyone in the, in the business world um, because it's really about the idea that, you know, you, through, through generosity you can actually gain uh, a lot, and people don't realize that. Um, I am reading right now the book Educated by Tara West. Westover, a uh, fantastic inspirational story about, uh, about a woman who, uh, you know, grows up in an environment where she's not educated and how she overcomes that. And it's a great, great book. Um, so those are two off the top of my head. Um, I love everything by Dan, Dan Pink. I mean, he, I'm a big fan of his work. And, uh, and uh, you know, his, his, his newest book is, is really about the best time to do things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, I believe it's called When. Yep, we had and, him on last summer, Authors in August. <laughs> yeah, and I love, I love his stuff, and I love the way he looks at, you know, he, he takes this sort of out-of-the-box out of, out of approach to thinking about very familiar um, subjects and, and problems and brings a whole um, fresh perspective. And then, of course, um, I am a huge fan of the work of Daniel Kahneman, um, and influenced my current book a lot, uh, my, my book about beautiful mm-hmm. questions. Um, and there was a section on, you know, the questions you need to ask when you're making decisions. And a lot of that was influenced by Daniel Kahneman and his, uh, I, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. I think it's a big concept, the idea of, of slow thinking and fast thinking. I think we all need to be familiar with that. If you haven't if you haven't, if you're not familiar with mm. thinking fast and slow, I'd say to your audience, you know, become familiar with it because that concept of slow and fast thinking is really, really important. Seminal work, uh, Warren. If I wanted to reach out to you because maybe I'd like to have you come speak to my company, how would I do so? 
Oh, and I, anyone can reach me anytime at, uh, at uh, Warren at WarrenBerger.com. I mean, I, I'm interested in what people have to say. They can, they can also reach me through my website. Uh, I have two websites. One is just WarrenBerger.com, and the other is AmoreBeautifulQuestion.com. Mm-hmm. So you can go to the websites, reach me that way, or just send me a direct email at, at my name. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from all people. I, I love people who have questions, who want to contribute their own beautiful questions. Sometimes I post those on my website. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or just someone who's, you know, has their own story about maybe what questioning uh, meant to them in their lives or how it changed their life. Net, mm. net, take it all in all. Has it been helpful or unhelpful to have your name be a homophone for the 15th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Burger, with a U? Oh, it's extremely helpful. I'll tell you why. Because people people will say, I'll, I'll say my name, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, I I, I know that name," and and I, I like to ride on that. I say, "Well, that's you're probably because you've heard about my book." Yeah. So so it it, it has that little uh, benefit. A, lo- a lot of people remember the name of Warren Burger from the Chief Justice, but they don't remember him because it's, he's he's far enough back. Mm. So the name has that familiarity, and, and I kind of yes. benefit from it. Yes. Uh, rhetorical, if you will, but will AI and robots in the end invent the best questions? Well, I don't know. I mean, as, as I was saying earlier, I think right now, you know, questioning is, is, is a human uh, domain, because it, it, the, the, the great questions involve a certain kind of creative thinking that I don't know that uh, AI has, has gotten there yet. Um, People tell me AI will get to everything. You know, it will be creating works of art and doing all that stuff. So I guess at some point it, it may be uh, questioning really well. But uh, right now I like to think of questioning as the human, uh, a human gift, a human tool. And I, I kind of hope it stays that way because, look, the machines have the answers. Great. They're better at answers than we can ever be. They have more storage and more capability than we could ever have. But, you know, I would like to think we can maintain the edge in questioning. Yeah. Well, at the heart of it is creativity, and humans are pretty good at that. I think always will be. But maybe we'll be augmented or helped. Yeah. Well, I think it's always going to help us with questioning. I just hope it doesn't, you know, become better at us and, and replace <laughs> us on questioning. And, and I think the one, the one edge we have, too, with questioning is a lot of times questioning can be almost counterintuitive and illogical. You know, some of the great questions are like, uh, they, they sound sort of crazy when you first hear them. And so that may give the, that may give the computers problems, right? Mm-hmm. Because computers are, are so logical, right? And so if you, uh, if you, if you rely on counterintuitive and, and, and uh, that kind of thing, then I think it, that may be where humans are better off. Warren Berger, thank you for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. David, it was really great talking to you, and uh, it, it was, uh, enjoyed, enjoyed being here. Well, thanks again to Warren for his time. I hope you enjoyed our introduction, our exploration of the power of questions and what it can mean for you in your own life, your investing life, your professional life, and probably the most important one of all, your life life. And I think where this podcast lives and breathes most powerfully is when we try to speak to all three. So, again, thank you to Warren for really doing a good job engaging us on all levels. All right, well, next week... Authors in August continues. We've got Chris McDougall. This is a horse of a different color. His wonderful book, one part adventure book, one part exploration of parkour and modern day understanding of physiology. It's Chris McDougall's Natural Born Heroes. Chris will join me here next week. That means you have seven days to read the book if you haven't already. Get to it. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. 
and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.